This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. My name's Owen. Uh, nice to meet you. I've not met you before. And thank you for turning up this morning. Thank you for tuning in or listening to this. Uh, I, uh, I'm really grateful uh, to you for giving me the chance to speak and share something with you, uh, which I hope is inspiring and, 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 and brings focus to, uh, to Jesus in your lives. Pardon me. So that's, uh, that's what we're going to do today. Thanks for, for that. Um, if you've not met me before, it's probably because you've been starting to gather at seven in the last three months. Uh, Claire and I have been away for three months. We've been on a three-month sabbatical, which has been absolutely amazing. I mean, it's been incredible. We've had uh, the first time in 31 years since I was 18 years old when I started going to church regularly. Um, for the first time in 31 years, we had 13 consecutive Sundays not doing church. And, and you know what? I, it was great. We really had a great time, and uh, we've so enjoyed ourselves. It's been brilliant to kind of have that break and give ourselves a different perspective, um, and certainly we've come back with uh, fresh thoughts and ideas about what we'd like to experiment with to, you know, to f- freshen up what we do and also give, give a new perspective on what we do as well and, and expand what we do. So we're excited about that. Um, out of the corner of my eye, I, I can see my wife discussing the length of my trousers with... <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when you put yourself on a stage like this, you really do expose yourself. I'm like, what is it, September 4th? It's September 4th, isn't it? So I'm going to carry on wearing shorts as long as I can. Um, we are lovers of the summer, aren't we, Claire? We like the sun, we like the warmth. Um, anyway, you can, um, you can hear about a couple of the reflections I've already shared uh, from the stage here over the last couple of weeks, and you can listen to those on our podcast. You can watch them again on our podcast, and indeed, you can listen to them on your earphones if you want to. Uh, just go to our website or, or Seven Vineyards podcast and subscribe. Um, but today I want to share with you a third reflection um, that I've had, and, and that is the importance of rituals. And the reason I've realised the importance of rituals, or had a fresh reflection on the importance of rituals, is the absence of rituals in my life. I don't know if you have any rituals in your life, have a think maybe. Um, but uh, last week I argued that you cannot say from the Bible that God only shows up at church. Okay, and, um, and, and that's because in the Bible we see time and again how God shows up with people and connects with people aside from any organised sort of gathering of worship. And, and so, you know, not only do we see that in the Bible, but I, I personally, I see that in my own life as well. I see God turning up in my own life. And certainly during my sabbatical, I saw God turning up and shaping up and, and being able to see God sharpening of my senses. I experienced God with all of my five senses throughout my sabbatical, and I never attended church in any shape or form. So last week I argued that you don't have to just go to church, so you don't have to go to church to encounter God. But that is not to say that local church is not important. Right now, if we brainstormed all of the reasons why we, we, why we value church, what is it we get out of church, what is it church does, we would have a long list of fantastic reasons. And one of those reasons would have something to do with the importance of rituals in our lives. We all have rituals. Uh, they differ from habits in that they are intentional. Habits tend to be th- mindless. You know, we just do it every day. But, but rituals are more intentional. We do it with a purpose in mind. So for me, um, I always take Saturday off. Like Saturday is like a clear day. I never really plan anything on a Saturday. Saturday is my day off. We lie until 10.30 and we have uh, just, a, we don't have young kids, so that's why we're able to do that. Um, and uh, we just have a lazy day. Unless it was like yesterday when I decided to start relining the loft, which is not 
not a nice experience to do them. Itchy all over my skin. Anybody else done that? You know, got all that kind of mineral water insulation in your loft. Has anyone else done that? Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? Horrible. Um, but uh, yeah, Saturdays are my day off. I always drink coffee at 11 o'clock in the morning. I always have an 11s. It's, it's, it, I think it's something to do with my mum. I think my mum always used to have an 11s, and I think I always have them ever since. Don't drink coffee much the rest of the time, but always have a coffee at 11 o'clock. Why? Because it breaks my day up, and it gives me something to look forward to in the morning. You know? it's, I love my coffee, and I'm quite particular about my coffee. I like the crema to be really good, and I like to mix the milk carefully into the crema so that I don't destroy the crema, because everyone knows that the crema is the best part of a coffee. Am I right? Yeah, it's, and you want it really golden. Nice golden, because that's where the oils are in the coffee, you see, friends. That's where it matters. Okay, the rest of it, I could leave it, honestly. Drink the crema, and I could re- leave the rest of the coffee, because that's where the real flavour is. Um, what else do I do? Uh, I always go to church on a Sunday morning. I, I always celebrate Christmas and Easter. So there's some rituals that I have. What about you guys? Any, anyone, anybody want to shout out what their rituals are, or, or post on Facebook what your rituals are? Friday night ice cream, that's a good one. Religiously, every week? Every week. What kind of ice cream? We have different different scoops of ice cream and different types of ice cream. Any brands that kind of stand out? Oh, usually Ben & Jerry's. Ben & Jerry's, yeah, yeah. They're nice and ethical as well, aren't they? Yeah, that's good. Anyone else got one? Yes. Yeah. Always has a pint. It could be 7.30 in the morning and he has a pint. Yeah, yeah. Is that something to do with nerves about flying? No, just a, it's just a ritual. Yeah, that's a good one, I like that. Any others? Waffles on Saturday morning. Do you make them yourself? You make them yourself? You got a waffle maker? Yeah, is that getting harder as your kids get older? It is. Waffles don't have such a pull. Yeah, I know what you mean. Do you, do you chuck bacon in there as well, Dan? Special occasions. Special occasions, yeah, yeah. Bacon usually gets my daughter out of bed. The boys that aren't interested. Uh, any others? We have to dress up to the nines on Christmas Day. Do you? Really? So, so on Christmas Day, everyone dresses up really smartly? In the evening. Fantastic. That's nice. And so it, it, is that because it just kind of makes it a special event? Is it just a tradition that you started, your kids started? Fantastic. So if, if I turned up at your house Christmas evening, you would, you would be in a suit and you'd be in a nice dress. Is that, how, is that what it is? DJ, dinner jacket. Fantastic. I love that. It's great, isn't it? Well, you know, uh, rituals are super important to us, and um, there's a few reasons for that. But um, uh, apparently athletes have their rituals, and it seems that it's more than just superstition. Okay, there's reasons. Uh, there's actually scientific reasons why uh, the, the sort of rituals that athletes have work. And everyone probably knows about Rafa Nadal, right? So Rafa Nadal is a tennis player, world famous tennis player if you don't know him. And frankly, he is famous for his on-court rituals. One routine involves 12 steps, which sees him towel dry his face, bounce the ball 10 to 12 times, adjust his underwear, adjust the shoulders of his T-shirt, wipe the side of his nose, tuck his hair behind his ears, and wipe his nose again. And honestly, 
if you've not seen this, you should watch the US Open uh, this week because he's competing in it. And just watch, you'll see him do that. It's incredible. I mean, it winds his opponents of nothing else because it takes about 30 seconds. But <laughs> apparently, um, sports psychologists say that uh, pre-performance rituals can improve an athlete's concentration levels and reduce anxiety. And indeed, in his autobiography in 2012, Rafa explains that his rituals are a way of placing myself in a match, ordering my surroundings to match the order that I seek in my head, which makes me laugh because I just think his opponents must be so, so annoyed with him for doing it, you know, uh, because it would no, no doubt put them off their game. But nevertheless, for him, it brings order to his mind and therefore to his play. So perhaps the rituals that we have, and we've just mentioned a few fun ones, but perhaps the rituals that we have actually bring order to our lives. Perhaps they... Um, order, when we look ahead to the week uh, and we put those rituals in place, that perhaps they bring an order and structure to our lives that reduces any sense of anxiety. You know, if I know, if I know I've got nothing much to look forward to from nine o'clock until, or eight o'clock until one o'clock when I eat lunch, then that's why I have a coffee break. You know, um, it, it brings order to my day, it helps me work effectively, it helps me concentrate. Um, so maybe that's one of the reasons we have rituals and maybe that's true of our week as well maybe coming to church on a Sunday like this you know, apart from times when we're maybe off uh, uh, you know, visiting people for the weekend or whatever or, or, or I don't know, going for a bike ride or going for a run the reality is, is that perhaps it brings that order we turn up to the same place every week we do the same thing every week and there's something about that that brings structure and order to our lives. Um, another reason for rituals is to create a common sense of identity amongst a group of people. So families have rituals together. Dan just said about how one of the reasons he does pancakes, not pancakes, waffles on a, Sunday, on a Saturday morning. Let's get it right. You used to do pancakes as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah I thought so, yeah. I've had pancakes at your house on Saturday morning. Anyway, um, it's to bring the family together, right? Uh, we, we do the same. We always try and insist that we gather together for the evening meal. Anyone else do that? We, so we have three kids and we always insist, yeah, let's get the kids down. <laughs> Can I go to my room and eat in my room? No, you can't. You've been in your room all day long. Like, no, we're going to sit and we're going to eat together. And sometimes we sit around the table. Sometimes we sit in the lounge. And sometimes um, we have an argument. And it feels like, why is the, what is the point? We should just eat in our own room. We, you know, we don't have these arguments. But the reality is, is that actually coming together like that creates a sense of identity for the Lynch family. You know, uh, another thing we do is we try and have holidays and weekends away as much as we can because we know that shared experience bonds our relationships together. Uh, it's got harder as the kids have got older because we can't dictate what happens. We have to listen to them and try and shape our holidays or weekends away around the kids because we want them to enjoy it and we don't want them just to feel like they're dragged along. But the reason we do it is because we want to create a sense of identity and, and also a sense of community for us as a household. And of course we do that not just with our nuclear family but our much wider family and our friends as well. It's so important. Like, how hard is it, guys, to kind of... Find time for friends, you know. Last weekend, uh, four, four of our friendship families, we all went uh, off for the day after church. We went off to the River Usk um, uh, in Wales, and we just spent the afternoon barbecuing and swimming in the river. It was great. We had a wonderful time. And, and the reason we do that is for shared experience, because it builds friendship. If you don't build it in, it doesn't happen, does it? Because you don't have a sense of, of shared experience and identity. And... Um, and that's true uh, for, uh, for us as a nation as well. Like, the way we 
our identity is built as a nation is through rituals. So rituals like the Royal Jubilees, you know, uh, how, how, those, those things bring us together as a country, don't they? I mean, the, the, you know, not all of us, of course, because we're not all royalists, but nevertheless, that sense of coming together as a country is built around national events, a royal wedding, a bank holidays, um, festivals. I mean, it's been festival season, hasn't it? You know, it's just such a sense of community. My son went to Reading last year, and what he loved about it was everyone was just like on the same page, uh, apart from burning each other's tents. There was this sense of just kind of like everyone was nice to each other. Like, yeah, we're all together. We're at this festival. We're having a great time. Um, it creates a sense of identity and unity. Uh, Wimbledon. Uh, creates a sense of British identity. Uh, the Olympics, the Commonwealth Games, all sporting events really create that. The Eurovision Song Contest. You know, you, you either, you know, for me, I, I love it because I like to see Britain do well at the Eurovision Song Contest, but also I love it because I like to be, feel like I'm part of Europe. Um, and Eurovision kind of creates that sense of identity. And of course, we're going to be hosting it in the UK this year as well, uh, next year rather, which is going to be super exciting. So you didn't know I was a bit of a Eurovision fan, did you? No. <laughs> You wouldn't think it either, those of you that know me well. Um, so rituals bring order and rhythm to our lives. And rituals, when performed with other people, increase a sense of togetherness and also remind us that we are part of something bigger, which again is what we're doing here, isn't it? We're reminding ourselves that we're part of something bigger um, and, uh, and that we have a unity in that. And, and so, of course, um, as a church, we, we're, the Bible's right, central to what we're, we're, we do and, and, and what our culture is. So we're just going to look at the Bible to see uh, how uh, rituals play a role in the Bible. Moses, we're going to just look at Moses as part of our encounters with Old Testament characters uh, today. I know that uh, already someone else has talked about Moses and did it very well. I'm just going to look at a different aspect of Moses today. And, and I just want to explain a few things about him. He's an Israelite who leads his family out of slavery in Egypt, all two million of them, okay? So he's part of this massive family, the Israelites, 12 tribes of Israel, all descended from Jacob, who was descended from Isaac, who was descended from Abraham. And, uh, and, and by the time Moses grows up, his whole family, which is about two million people, are enslaved um, in Egypt. And Moses gives these people a national and tribal identity. And he does this in two ways. First of all, he and his team put together what you and I would call an act of parliament or a statute book. He pulls together, he codifies the law and creates a legal framework for the, this, these two million people to live in relative harmony with each other. You need laws, right? Otherwise you have anarchy. So that's what, first of all, he creates. He creates, one of the, he creates a legal code. And the second thing he does is he creates rituals that bind the nation together with a common identity. And if you're, uh, if you're um, keen to uh, note the Bible reference for this, I'm going to just guide you to Leviticus 23. Uh, so you can uh, note that in your Bibles or your Bible app if you've got one. Leviticus 23, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. And there were seven of them. There was the Sabbath, which is like what we call Sunday or day off, uh, Passover and unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, day of atonement and the festival of tabernacles. And you can read all about those in Leviticus 23. I haven't got time to describe them in detail to you. So have a look at those yourself when you have a moment. But each of these festivals was intended to remind them that they belonged to the same nation, that they had a common culture and heritage. Don't you know how important that is 
that you are reminded what your common heritage is. We are always fighting with this in Britain. What is our heritage? What is our identity as a nation? How do we bring together uh, such an incredible diversity of people as one nation? And it's not an easy thing to do. So it's not surprising that Moses, uh, not only did he institute a legal code, but he also said, right, we've got to have some rituals that, that remind us of our past and our relationship with God and remind us of our common identity with each other. And would you know, uh, uh, descendants of Moses are still practicing these festivals three and a half thousand years later. Isn't that incredible? I'm not sure if, I, if this is true or not, but it would seem to me that the nation of Israel must be one of, one of the longest continuing running nation states in the whole world, right? They've existed in pretty much similar format for three and a half thousand years. That's incredible. And that is in part down to the rituals and the festivals and, and, and the, the, the story that they, they identify with. Um, and I'm sure that uh, uh, these festivals and rituals have been instrumental in the enduring presence of the Israelite nation over these thousands of years, despite the most incredible oppression that many generations have suffered. So Moses did a good thing when he did what he did. If we rewind not quite as far back as Moses, but we just rewind 2,000 years to the time of Jesus of Nazareth, we will see, if we read it in, in the accounts of his life, that it was normal for him to celebrate the seven Jewish festivals. And, and I would suggest to you that's one of the reasons why some of those festivals and some, some shape of those festivals has found its way into Christianity. You'll see in front of me here, if not at home, but let me describe, we've got some... Uh, bread made without yeast, some flatbread here, and some couplets of wine. And this little thing that we're going to do later, you'll see, is related to one of those major festivals. It's found its way into Christianity. Why? Because it was important to Jesus. And, um, and, and so Jesus was a Jew. He celebrated the seven Jewish festivals. And, um, and the one that I um, want to talk about um, that's found its way into Christianity is the festival of Passover and unleavened bread. Sabbath has also found its way into Christianity, but the festival of Passover and unleavened bread is the source of what we variously call in Christian terms the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper or communion, depending on the tradition that we're talking about, you know, Catholics, Protestants, whatever. Um, it's, it's this festival of Passover and unleavened bread that this little ceremony, this little ritual is sourced from. Now let me just recap with you, if it's okay, the story of the Passover, because you might either have forgotten it or, or not be familiar with it. So three and a half thousand years ago, Moses was literally threatening the king of Egypt with terrible plagues if he did not let the Israelites leave their slave enslaved position. Okay? If you don't release my people, Moses said, I'm going to call down this plague on you, that plague on you. And there's 10 plagues. I mean, it's just destructive and terrible. The first nine plagues don't persuade the king, the pharaoh, to release the Israelites. So Moses thinks of the worst one. In communication with God, thinks of the worst one that God is going to unleash on the Egyptians. And, uh, and that one is this, that an angel of death will kill all of the firstborn sons of the Egyptian families, and not just the Egyptian families, but livestock as well. And Moses is clear that this angel of death will pass over, pass over 
the Israelite households and not kill their firstborn. But only as long as the Israelites slaughter a lamb and eat it, uh, basically have a roast lamb dinner, okay? Um, and because sometimes the Bible can feel a bit weird and foreign, but that's what they were having. It's a roast lamb dinner. Um, but slaughter a lamb, eat it, and daub some of the blood of that lamb on their door frames. Now, don't you know that it's said um, that history is usually written by the victors of a battle, not the losers? I think, uh, I think Churchill once said that, but I don't, I don't think it's entirely his quote. History is written by the victors, not the losers. So it's notable that if you look through Egyptian history, they make no reference to the ten plagues. They make no reference to a person called Moses. But for the Jews, this story of the Passover is such a seminal story to their history that they celebrate it for the next three and a half thousand years. Such an important story of God's protection and God's salvation of the Israelites. And so ever since, the Israelites have celebrated this special relationship with Yahweh with roast lamb, with unleavened bread, which is bread without yeast, and wine. And they would retell the story of God's salvation of the Israelite people over and over again. Three and a half thousand years. Incredible. And every generation picked up this story. And let's remember that back in the time of Moses, they didn't write things down. So the fact that this story still exists is simply down to the, to the incredible um, repetitive nature of retelling this story generation after generation after generation. In reality, although some documents were written down, most of this stuff was written down around about 586 BC, so only two and a half thousand years ago. So there would have been a thousand years where this wasn't written down. It was just passed down from generation to generation to generation through festivals and through retelling these stories. And so Jesus, of course, is recorded as doing this on the night before he was executed. And, but he, that won't have been the only time that he celebrated the Passover. He'll have celebrated the Passover repeatedly. During his lifetime, every year, from being a tiny baby, he would have celebrated the Passover. He would have known it um, without having to read it out. It was just embedded in his consciousness. Just like the story of Santa Claus is embedded in our consciousness. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like these stories you get told as a child, you know, um, the reality is, is that for Jesus, this was second nature. And, and the night before he was executed, he celebrates the Passover with his friends. I'm just going to read it to you. It's in Luke 22. Luke 22, verses 7 and 8. Then the day came for the, uh, then, sorry, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Verse 14, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfilment in the kingdom of God. Now I just have to remind you that this was not just a very simple, they didn't just eat bread and wine at this meal, okay? They would have had a long meal. They would have reclined. They would have told, retold the story of the, uh, of the emancipation from slavery, of the exodus from Egypt. They would have retold all of that story in various stages. They would have toasted with glasses of wine. They would have eaten herbs and bitter, um, uh, salt water and bitter herbs. They would have eaten vegetables. They would have eaten the roast lamb. Um, and, and, and they would have eaten unleavened bread. Um, they would have been pretty chilled out because the, the Passover meal includes four large glasses of red wine. All right, so they would have been relaxed. Okay, they would have been reclining at the table. I mean, how many of us know what we feel like when we've had four glasses of red wine? Yeah, I wake up usually at two o'clock in the morning. 
and I can't get back to sleep. Anyone else know that? It's true, isn't it, right? It's not a very nice feeling. Oh, what is it? Why can't I get back to sleep? Oh, it's because I had four glasses of red wine for dinner. I don't generally drink lots of four glasses of red wine. I do occasionally. But the point is, is that is they would have been relaxed. I just want you to take it away from this kind of religious kind of thing. They were there as friends, retelling the story as they would have done for generations. And he says, he takes one of the glasses of wine. I mean, it's not a glass, obviously, because they didn't use a glass in those days, but he would have taken a cup of wine and he gave thanks. And he took this glass of wine and he said, oh, divide it amongst you, pass it around. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine, that's wine, until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. So he took some of the unleavened bread. As one of the courses, it's something called matzah, which is, um, which is like a crispy bread. You wouldn't really recognise it. We don't eat much of it nowadays. But he, gave, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup, another cup, another course of wine saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Okay, so... By the time of Jesus, 1,500 years after Moses, this meal would have uh, evolved. They would have added elements to it. It was quite a party because it was a celebration. And I think sometimes one of the things we miss when we, when we do this Lord's Supper thing is we miss that it's actually a celebration. It's a celebration of God's faithfulness, God's enduring love and God's salvation. And, uh, and so there would have been about 10 or 15 steps, as I said. Bitter herbs dipped in salt water. That's a bit weird, but it means something. Lots of ritual hand washing. Lots of singing of emancipation songs. You know, the sort of gospel songs that, that, that uh, came out of the uh, black American South. Those are the sorts of songs that the Jews were singing and still sing today. Sing of, of God's emancipation, of God's rescue, of God's salvation. Um, and, uh, and it was all washed down, as I said, with four large glasses of red wine. And each round of wine is accompanied by a loud expression of redemption. So they wouldn't just sip the wine during the meal. They'd literally down it in, in, one, in one moment. So, so the, the, there'd be four times where they'd drink the red wine and they would ex- loudly exclaim these four phrases, uh, four expressions of God's salvation. I will take you out. I will save you. I will redeem you. I will take you as a nation. Now, just for the sake of involvement, I'm not saying you want to own these words, but let's just, let's just shout this out ourselves, okay? So we'll, we'll do, I will take you out. Let's, let's shout that out together. I will take you out. You ready? One, two, three. I will take you out. Okay, and then everyone downs their wine. All right, the next one, I will save you. One, two, three. I will save you. Come on, you're at a party. You've had a few glasses of wine, all right? Third one. One, two, three. Uh, sorry, I will redeem you. One, two, three. I will redeem you. And the last one, because you really have had more wine than you really should have done, this was, I will take you as a nation. You ready? One, two, three. I will take you as a nation. That's what they did. Because this was a celebration of what God had done for them. Now, just one last thing about this meal. At the beginning of the meal, a piece of the bread matzah would be taken and it would be broken and they'd be wrapped in a cloth and then that it would be hidden somewhere around the house and that was partly to keep the kids attention because the kids would all be involved in this and they'd all be drinking the wine as well and they would their job would be to go and find what's called the afikoman it's this broken piece of bread and they'd have a big hide and seek and they'd find it eventually and it would be they'd 
kid that found it would celebrate, you know, I found the afikoma and bring it to the table and that afikoma would then be broken. Now what's interesting about this afikoma, which is this last broken bit of bread, is that tradition has it that this piece of bread is a substitute for the Passover lamb. So this is the celebration that Jesus is celebrating with his, with his friends. So let's just revisit Jesus' words as the host of the Passover meal. And let me say, the elder would lead, retelling the story and leading the toasts and everything else. Taking the glass of wine, instead of saying the traditional refrain, I will redeem you, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. I don't know what the disciples would have thought about when, when he said that. I bet they were perplexed. And then taking the piece of bread wrapped in a cloth, the afikoman, the bit that is, is brought out as a substitute for the Passover lamb. He says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus takes the most important and deeply ingrained metaphor of this unique historical relationship between this nation of Israel and their God, Yahweh, and seems to say that he is the substitute for the Passover lamb. He is the afikoman, the broken piece of bread. It's like he is saying that his imminent execution, which he knows is going to happen the next day, or in perhaps the day after, in that he's drawing a parallel between the Passover lamb and himself. Now, if you find that hard to get your head around, you are not alone. Ever since this happened, People have struggled to get their head round. What did Jesus die for? Why did he die? And if, you're, if you want to explore this more, I'm not going to go into it in detail now. We have talked about this previously, and Claire did a great talk on it, so you can rewind through our podcast. But if not, have a look at this book. Um, this book here is written by uh, a friend of mine, Stephen, Ber- Stephen Bernhope, and he, he calls it Telling the Old, Old Story in a Postmodern World. It's actually a super thin book, so it will only take you about, I don't know, Two hours to read it, two hours. Um, Max, in fact, probably less actually. But in there, you'll get a really sort of good overview of the ways in which people have tried to make sense of Jesus' death on the cross and what it meant. But there's a mystery to it, and that's what we're going to ponder and celebrate as we now eat some bread made without yeast and drink some wine. It is actually wine. Um, There is non-alcoholic wine here as well so it's very clearly marked there's also gluten-free bread and med bread made with gluten so if you if you if you'd like to eat and drink this we'd love you to um but as we do it i'm going to just invite you just to reflect on what it might mean to you what does it mean to you? What does this bread mean? What does Jesus' body broken, Jesus' body on the cross mean for you? What does his resurrection mean? What does it mean for you that Jesus gave himself in this way? What does it mean? And I'm just going to invite you to meditate on that and to uh, use this physical act of eating this bread and drinking this wine as a way of meditating on this very profound very, well, centrally profound act of Jesus. And, if you like, the whole of the story behind it, that it represents that this, this meal, this Passover meal, talked about God's salvation of the Israelites. And Jesus appropriated that and said, I am God's salvation. What does that mean for you? What does it mean to be saved? Where do you need to be saved? Where do you need rescue? Where do you need to feel alive?
That's what we're going to invite you to do now. And uh, Burns written a, a, a piece of music just for this moment. Um, just going to be very quiet, sort of meditative uh, sound. And I'm just going to invite you to come, take a piece of bread, take a cup of uh, juice, or wine rather, not juice. Um, as I said, there is non-alcoholic wine there, okay? So, so you don't have to take the wine if you don't want to. But for a truly authentic experience, you may, may want to take the wine. Um, and I'm going to invite you to do that. I'm going to put, play some music in your own time. Just cry, come and grab some of this and then take it back to your seat and then either eat it with, with the person you came with or just eat it quietly by yourself. And we're just going to have some quiet music playing. And then I'll just draw us back to finish. I was going to um, do something which is... Uh, very traditional in the Christian church but that is to pray a blessing on us and uh, I just want to pray that the Holy Spirit would sharpen us, sharpen our senses to experience the risen Christ in everything that we do the word Christ means anointed one, it means Messiah it means the life force the divine life force of the universe and um, the Apostle Paul spent his life after he encountered the Christ Jesus arguing that Jesus was the Christ the divine life force of this universe he even argues with the, to the Colossians that Christ is for all and in all so may May we experience a sharpening of our senses, all five of our senses, whether it's through the tasting of the wine, which would remind us of the meal that Jesus led on the night before he was executed, or whether it was the taste of the bread made without yeast, just a very evocative uh, taste that reminds us of sacrificial love. Or, or maybe it's just the beauty of feeling the warmth of the sun on your face, or just looking into the eyes of someone you're talking to and knowing that they're made in the image of God. May the, may the, may the Holy Spirit, may the, the, the life force of our universe, the, our, our divine creator, may we know and see God in all that we do and, and, and wherever we are. And may you experience the joy and the peace and the love of knowing every time you open your eyes, every time you close your eyes, every time you look around you and through all of your five senses you might experience the power of God in your life today and through this week. Not just for you and, and me, but also for all of our loved ones. Wherever you are, whether you're listening to this, may the Spirit of God touch you in that way and bring life and joy and hope and peace to your being, whatever you are facing right now. And in the name of Jesus, I pray. May you be blessed.